some of the greatest uh, uh, talks uh, online and, and, and talks that make you think, make you go, huh. And, and then he moves on to the next thing and makes you go, huh, uh, again and again and again. Uh, it's my pleasure now to hand over the webinar to Derek Sivers, APSS, would you please give him a big, a big welcome? Just type all kinds of stuff on the keyboard, make it all spring together <laughs> while Derek takes over the, uh, the video. <laughs> Thank you. I've never done anything like this before. Uh, this is really funny to me. Uh, I'm in a hotel room in Spain, so that's why the uh, candy stripes behind me. I hope the internet connection here is good enough. Uh, I'm just, yeah, on an iPad in a hotel room. So um, sorry for the secrecy that uh, I was actually surprised by that. Frederick asked me if I would do this. And I said, yes, of course, I'd be glad to. And uh, Frederick's one of those people, you know, I'll say no to everybody else, but yes to Frederick because I adore him. Uh, and so I said, yes, I'd be glad to. And then he said, are we allowed to tell them who you are? I said, yeah, of course, what? what? Why would you not? So, sorry, uh, the secrecy was not intended. Um, I'm going to, what I've got for you today is not truly a presentation. That would be too meta, but instead I'm just here for a conversation. So I've got a couple questions that were emailed to me in advance. And I hope that while I'm talking, you collect your questions because uh, I'm going to, I've got a little bit of stuff prepared and then mostly I would just rather have a two-way conversation to hear what you guys want to know. So I'm gonna start first though with a story that you will appreciate, I think. When I was in my 20s, I, uh, was, a, I was a musician and I had recently started an online music store called CD Baby. And I had grown up in Chicago, but now I was living in New York City. And a group that I hadn't heard of before called the Chicago Something Music Group um, emailed me about something else, or maybe it was just a, somebody who was, was a member of the Chicago Music Group emailed. I said, Chicago Music Group, what's that? He said, oh, it's, you know, a bunch of musicians get together once a month for a gathering, and we talk about things that pertain to being an independent musician. I said, cool, I'd love to come to one of those. And he said, great. I said, and then later I said, well, I'm going to be in Chicago on April 13th. Um, maybe I could come that day. He said, yeah, that would be great. Come on down. So, on April 13th or whatever it was, I found the directions. I was just following a GPS and they, I think they said we get together from seven to nine. So I thought, okay, I'll show up sometime between seven and nine. And I think I got, I got a little lost and I got there about 7.45 in the evening. And I, I'm giving you all these details because of what happens next. So I find this dark door in a dark part of town and knock and they answer and somebody goes, oh, Derek, you're here. Oh, great. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, great. Here, let me bring you in this way. And I thought, okay, this is a lot of celebration. What, why is he acting like this? And so he leads me down this hallway and he opens this door and suddenly I'm on stage and there were a couple hundred faces watching me. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, Derek Sivers is here. Will you please welcome Derek Sivers? Okay, Derek, go. And I said, what? I just thought I was attending a meeting of your music group. And he said, oh, well, we thought you were coming here to speak. And I had never in my life spoken publicly before. That was my introduction to public speaking. I was suddenly on stage and they had put aside 45 minutes for me to talk. And I was late that I didn't know 
that I was supposed to be there at seven. I just thought I was attending somebody else's party as a guest. So that was my introduction to public speaking. And on the fly, on stage, I had to think of 45 minutes of things to tell a room full of musicians. And I came up with some things, things that I just, if I were out to dinner with you personally and you were a musician and you said, so what have you learned? Like, can you give me any tips? Then yeah, I guess I would have had 45 minutes of tips to give somebody. So I just sat there on stage and gave people some tips and shared some stories that I thought were enlightening. So that was my introduction to public speaking. I still don't consider myself a speaker, um, but here are my thoughts. And because I've never attended one of your meetings before, I don't know if what I'm about to say is completely boring and obvious or not. So we're about to find out. So what I wrote down in preparation for this is, uh, whoops, sorry, a couple of my thoughts on public speaking. So for one, my opinion is that people, people come to a talk to learn something new. I think my introduction to watching public speaking, besides just attending a few conferences, is when I started going to TED first as a, just as an attendee, I attended TED and just watched, you know, 18 minute talks for four days and just watched tons of them. And I thought about why I'm here. I'm here to learn something new. I don't want to hear what I already know. I don't need to hear what I already know reinforced right now. I'm here to learn something new. So later when I became a speaker, I just thought, well, I'm only going to say something if I think it's something new, if it's surprising. So that leads to number two, is that people only learn when they're surprised. If they're not surprised, then you're just telling them what they already know and you might be spinning a tail and they might clap. But if you're not surprising them, then everything you're saying is just fitting in with their existing uh, view of the world. It's only when you actually change their view of the world, that when you're actually telling them something surprising that they actually learn. So number three, cut out everything from your talk that isn't surprising. Uh, again, maybe you guys know this, but this is kind of my like beginner 101 thing when somebody emails me and asks me if I have any public speaking advice, I always say first, Skip everything that isn't surprising. Don't think like this is my moment in the spotlight. I'm going to get up there and tell my tale. Everybody's here to hear the story of David. No, people aren't coming to hear your biography and your history. You can eliminate all of that. You don't have to get up on stage and say, well, before I begin, let me tell you something about where I came from. I am this, I am that. I went to school here. This is my experience. No, they don't care. They're not here to hear about you. They're here to talk, or they're here to think about themselves. And your job is to just help them do that. This isn't about you, it's about them. So number one, I just cut out everything from my talks that isn't surprising. I don't get up there and give talk context about first, let me tell you who I am. I mean, I've done that sometimes in the past, but I regret it, I would not do it again. Uh, and uh, instead I just jump right up there and tell them what's surprising. So first, of course, you, you write a talk. And then when you're editing that talk before you decide, you know, before you're turning it into a talk, that's when I just chop out everything that's not surprising. Even if I thought it's, um, I, I should say this first, but then I, I kind of look at it again with an editor's ax and think, I don't know. Can I possibly do without saying that? If I can, then I do. Um, which leads to number five, I, I put number four in there that this isn't about you. Oh, I said, they may be looking your direction, but they're only thinking of themselves. Uh, 
So number five is that nobody ever complained that a talk was too short. That if they wish you would have said more, then I think you've said just the right amount. You don't want to make them full. You want them to still be a little hungry. So I really like that thing. Like that, and that gets back to not giving them your full context and let me tell you my full tale of who I am is I'd rather when my talk is done, somebody say, who was that? And then have them be a little hungry to know more about me instead of feeling like I am satiated and full with that guy. <laughs> um, so ultimately I think that public speaking is just entertainment more than anything. Yes, it's educational. Yes, it might be motivational. It might be all these things. But to me, those are all secondary more than anything. I see it as just entertainment. So um, I think, uh, which leads to my thing about my TED Talks, if you want to talk about my TED Talks, is that you don't have to be an expert on a subject to make an entertaining 15 minutes about it. So um, I'll stop and tell a little story here. Um, about the TED conference. So I had attended TED as an attendee a couple times, and they send out an email just a month or two before the conference to registered paid attendees saying, we're going to do some audience talks. If you have something you'd like to present to the audience, let us know now. You can pitch three ideas at us. So I did. I pitched one idea that I thought would be a great talk that I really wanted to do. I pitched a second idea that I thought would be a really good talk that I also really wanted to do. And then I looked at this blank that said number three. And I thought, well, I don't know, gotta put something there. So um, I read an interesting article this morning, like an hour ago, that I thought was kind of interesting about that. So I'll put that in as number three, just so I filled up three. And of course you can guess where this is going, that they picked number three for me to do on stage at TED. Not TEDx, TED. And now I have to deliver a talk about an article I'd read that morning. Damn it. So I went and did a bunch of research. It was about how announcing your plans makes them less likely to happen. Peter Galwitzer from NYU had done some research and um, I had to present it as if I knew what I was talking about. And I didn't know anything. I made a, an entertaining um, two and a half minutes about this subject and I presented it. And forevermore, people, email me as if I'm some kind of expert on the subject saying, well, what about this? What if I announce my plans? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. I just gave an entertaining two and a half minutes on stage. It's just entertainment. Um, oh, and those, those are my eight points that I prepared. Um, Frederick asked me to talk about why I stopped speaking and stopped being on podcasts. And um, I think that's just because if you do this too much, well, maybe, maybe those of you watching are immune to this, but when I was doing this too much, I started to feel like an expert and I started to feel like a know-it-all and I started to feel like a guru. And that made me feel um, a little stuck in my ways. I like to have more questions than answers. And I think when you get into this dynamic, where everybody's asking you questions and you're the one delivering answers. You know, I'm doing this because it's like a raised stage, right? You know, question from the audience, answer from up above. You start to get into this mindset that you think you have the answers. And I found that that was kind of hurting my 
intellectual development. So uh, I did a really high profile one with Tim Ferriss on his podcast. Um, and it got so many listeners that I just felt like, okay, I'm done for a while. I'll just, I'll just let that reputation coast while I go back and hit the books and become a student again. Um, and I think that's it for, um, okay, so now I've got a couple emailed questions. First, a question from Siva in India of sivaspeaks.com. Hi, Siva, I hope you're here. Um, Siva asked me, what are a few ways and tips to build a global followership, uh, followership and global tribe? So here's my advice, and sorry, I'm looking at my notes on the side here. Um, my thoughts on this were, number one, achieve something interesting. That audiences want to listen to people who have achieved something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go make a lot of money. And I thought about this for a bit because I thought, imagine two examples, compare or compare two examples, two potential speakers, one who made millions because he was an early employee at Amazon and has been in the corporate ranks at Amazon for years, or two, somebody who just won a memory competition after studying for only one year and now has a bunch of advice on how you can improve your memory based on what he learned from winning a memory competition, even if he won, you know, a chocolate bar. I would much rather hear from somebody who achieved winning a memory competition. Uh, and there's a great book about that called Moonwalking with Einstein. Fascinating. The guy was just a journalist assigned to write a story about memory competitions. He showed up to this memory competition and said, this is weird. And a year later, he won the memory competition. And he tells his story about how he dove into that. Fascinating. Um, so it's not about making a lot of money. So don't think I have to go make a lot of money in order to be an acclaimed public speaker. I think people just want to see somebody who have somebody who's achieved anything and can share some actionable advice for you. So again, it's not about them, it's you. Um, another good example of this is if you look at what Tim Ferriss did around 2005, 2006, before he released the four hour workweek book, he was in his twenties and he knew he wanted to be famous. So he just went and achieved interesting things like he won a specific record in Argentine tango dancing and he lost 40 pounds quickly. But more importantly, he turned these into really actionable steps showing how you could do the same. Uh, so I think that the achievement, like my top advice here about like achieve something, just answers the, the audience question, why should I listen to you? Like why you? But all you have to do is just answer that question, why you? Because then the most important thing is next, which is succinct, and quotable, actionable steps. So you, you get famous not from telling your tale, but from keeping your focus on the audience. So your achievement is just the thing that tells them why they should listen to you. Um, but great advice should be catchy, to be memorable, um, for people to walk away. You, if, you tell, if you tell a really interesting point, but it takes a few paragraphs to describe, then it doesn't really spread past that room. Because if somebody says like, yeah, I heard an interesting talk today. Oh, what was it about? Well, sit down for 10 minutes and I'll tell you. No, nobody says that. They wanna hear like three or four or five words that get the point across. So anything I want to spread, I try to reduce it down to like three or four or five words that can spread. Um, so that leads to number three, which is to use every medium. Uh, because some people only read articles 
Some people only look at Instagram or Twitter. Some people only read books. Some people only watch YouTube and some people only listen to podcasts. That's all they do. Uh, so to reach the most people, you have to use every medium. Uh, so I think first take the time to write great content and I highly suggest hiring an editor to improve it. There's a freelance editors association out there. Um, if you email me, I can send you the link to the website if you can't find it on your own. Um, to hire an editor to improve it. Then get some catchy pull quotes from it because first you have to turn the articles, sorry, uh, turn these into articles that you can post like kind of blog style because some people only read articles. Um, combine them into a short book that you could put on Amazon. And yes, I said short because I think it can be even just like 60 pages. If you're self-publishing, you don't need to do that thing that you do to please Penguin Publishing where you have to turn it into a 300 page book so it looks good on the shelves. Um, my first book was only 80 pages and I never intended to do a book, but Seth Godin started a new publishing company and he called me and said, um, I'm starting a publishing company. I'd like you to be my first author. So I said, okay, you can't say no to Seth Godin. So um, he asked me to make a page, I mean, make a book that was just 11,000 words, um, just about 80 pages and could be read in under an hour. So I did, it's called Anything You Want. And I get so many emails from people thanking me for keeping it short because a lot of people don't like to read books or they buy a book with good intentions, but if it's 300 pages, they never finish. So um, yeah, you can make your book just 50, 80 pages. Um, put it on Amazon yourself, sell it because some people don't wanna read blogs. They don't wanna read tweets. They don't wanna look at Instagram. They just want a book. Um, so yeah, make videos and audio podcasts of the article, um, share it for people that for that format, share the quotes on then Twitter and Instagram, and then reach out to be a guest on other people's shows or sites. Sorry, some of that might be obvious, but maybe not. Okay, the next question, oh, and thank you Siva for that great question. I ended up spending like a whole hour thinking about it and writing about it. Um, so question from Dr. Philip Mary in Singapore of philipmary.com. Hi, Philip, if you're here. Um, Philip said, it seems like a lot of synchronicities happen to you, uh, out of the blue coincidences. Uh, what's your take on synchronicities and entrepreneurship? So I think that you just have to be out there doing things. And uh, Phil, I looked at your uh, website. And so this might not, I'm not maybe answering to you directly, but people who are curious about this subject. So. Um, it sounds like you're already doing this. So being out there doing things, meeting strangers, trying new experiences, doing a variety of jobs, and always looking for opportunities, ready to say yes to anything. Uh, I hear from a lot of people that grew up going to school and just playing video games after school. Then they go to university and they go straight from university to some office job somewhere. And their whole life, they've been kind of contained in this narrow track, school, university, job, office. And then they say, yeah, I wish I could start a business. I don't know what to do. And I think, well, yeah, wishing doesn't do it. Entrepreneurship is a very different approach to life than getting a job. It's kind of a hustle. It means being out there. So I got three short little stories for you. And I wrote in my notes as short as possible. I don't want to indulge in these three stories because just find the common thread about the synchronicity question in these three stories from my background. Um, when I was 17, I was in a band with somebody who said, and he had a booking agent, he was much more successful than me, 
his booking agent offered him a gig playing guitar at a pig show for $75 in Vermont, which was a $50 bus ride away. And he said, no, I don't want that stupid gig. And he asked me, do you want this gig? And I said, oh, hell yeah, my first paying gig. So at the age of 17, I took a $50 bus up to Vermont and I played guitar at a pig show. And I got paid $75 to play guitar at a pig show. But the booking agent who booked me at the pig show and got good feedback from the people at the pig show that said I was a nice guy said, um, hey, uh, the musician from our circus just quit. How do you like a full-time gig traveling with a circus? So for the next 10 years, I was the ringleader, MC, and musician of a circus. And so many people say, how'd you get that gig? I, think, I said yes to a $75 pig show gig. And that's how I got that gig. So um, number two, when I was at college, I was at music school, um, a visiting speaker came. He was like an executive from BMI in New York City, the writer-publisher relations uh, company. So this kind of big famous executive came to our little classroom to speak and just as he was walking into class I heard him say to the teacher like oh I, I thought we were going to eat first and the teacher said oh no I thought you ate already. And he said how long is the class? He said two hours. He goes oh man. You could, like He's like I was hungry. <laughs> and so while everybody was still getting seated I dashed out to the phone and quickly called Supreme's Pizza and I said yeah send uh, five pizzas to room 304. And about half an hour later, five pizzas showed up and this executive said, all right, kid, good move. I owe you one. He gave me his card afterwards. A few years later, after I graduated college, he got me a great job in New York City at Warner Brothers. Um, one of those jobs that's really hard to get unless you know somebody, but because I bought him the pizzas a couple years earlier, he got me the job. So now I had this sweet job in New York City and people said, how'd you get that? I said, got a pizza for a guy. Um, lastly, when I was living in New York City, um, my roommate was an assistant engineer, a lowly engineer at a recording studio in New York City, wrapping cables for minimum wage. But he came home one day and told me that Ryuichi Sakamoto, the famous Japanese musician, um, was about to go on tour and was looking for a guitarist. And my roommate told him about me. And I went, oh my God, I want that gig. And so I did whatever it took. I stayed up all night. I got a copy of the recording unit and I, and I busted my ass and I got the gig. And so there I was at the age of 22 years old, playing to 10,000 audiences of 10,000 in Tokyo on stage um, with this Japanese pop star. And people said, how'd you get that gig? It's like, my roommate was wrapping cables and knew somebody. So Phil, <laughs> I think the answer to your question about synchronicities is not some kind of magical universe thing, but um, I think it's just throwing yourself out there, saying yes to everything, trying lots of different experiences and doing lots of different things. And there you go. That's all I got. Um, feel free to, no, not feel free to, please ask me some questions now. Well, we've got uh, quite a few minutes uh, left. Great sharing. Thank you very much for that. Um, okay, I want to get I want to get to one of the questions that someone asked, and I want to just uh, meander into the territory around that as well. So the, the the comment was about your voice. You've got a great voice. It's fun to listen to. It's good to listen to. Do you work on that? Um, consciously work on your voice. And the the thing that I want to add on to that question is how how important is the aesthetic? when it comes to, you know, being entertaining, being interesting, uh, you know, good looks, good sound, good color, good whatever it is. Uh, what, what are your comments about that? So first about the voice. 
Let, okay, yeah, you might have to remind me of the second half if I indulge on the voice subject. Um, huh, voices mean a lot, don't they? Um, when I was running CD Baby, sometimes people would send in a CDs to sell of guided meditation and the music begins. Ding. And then the person starts speaking and you go, imagine a blue light. You are a blue light. I'm thinking, oh God, no, come on. You put so much effort into this. You can't, do you hear your voice? Um, so I think voice is definitely something you can work on. Um, I practiced singing for 15 years. That might have a lot to do with it. Um, uh, if you go to, I think it's sivers.org slash 15 dash years. I'm curious to see if I got the URL, right? Um, Sivers.org slash 15, like the number 15 dash Y-E-A-R-S is my story of how it took me 15 years of practice to learn how to sing. Uh, but after 15 years of practicing like an hour or more a day, I finally became a good singer. But I think that that also taught me how to use my voice. So yeah, I think I have spent many, many, many hours just practicing, you know, like making things throaty if I want to. <laughs> or uh, you could just, you practice with the different registers, you practice on where to focus the, uh, focus your voice. But then I think conversationally, um, you notice the difference uh, of, of being a dynamic speaker, even just conversationally among friends. So I said that I'm here in Spain. I have a friend here in Spain who is from Sicily and she is one of the most dynamic speakers I have ever heard. She whispers, she shouts and she says, no, I do not believe, I don't believe that everything has to go down to this. And she's just one of these like very dynamic people and she's just fascinating to listen to, but no voice lessons. She's not an entertainer. She's not a public speaker. She's just Sicilian. Um, so, uh, oh, thank you. You found the URL. Um, uh, so I think, yes, varying your voice is very, very useful. And since you were asking, I, I mentioned the circus gig I got earlier. That was one of my early lessons on the circus is I think when I was 18 years old and I first started working in the circus, I, I knew how to vary my voice conversationally, but when you're on stage, there's, you can do it even more. It took, it took me like a couple months. Uh, I was the ringleader MC of the show because the previous guy had quit and that's the job I got. But I would get up there and I'd say, hey everybody, uh, welcome to the Mime Circus. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the show's gonna begin pretty soon. If you wanna take your seats, we're gonna start our show. So yeah, um, here it goes. Welcome to the Mime Circus. And I'd go backstage and the boss would go, no, 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 come on, be more dynamic. And I'd say more dynamic. And the next day I'd go out there and go, hey, everybody, welcome to the show. It's like, no, more dynamic. And uh, eventually kind of uh, to be a little passive aggressive. One time I went, okay, you keep telling me to be more dynamic, I'll show you. And I went out on stage and I was like, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is the most amazing thing. And I like just, made it an absolute caricature of the carnival barker. And I went backstage and they said, yeah, now there you go. That's what we're looking for. So it was a good example that um, when you're on stage, you can be ridiculously dynamic and it seems natural because you're on stage. 
Um, you asked about the aesthetics. Um, I don't know, after attending many TEDs, like I've been to the TED conference many times now, so it, it feels like it, it's this crash course in, in watching speakers. And I don't remember what any of them looked like. And again, I think for the most part, like people are, like I always think people are facing your direction, but they're, their eyes may be looking your way, but their mind is just completely on themselves. I think they're not really thinking of you. So I think the, the aesthetics don't matter that much, except for the obvious, you know, if the sound is bad and the lighting is bad, um, that's distracting. But I think as long as you've just reached some base level, you know, you don't look horrendous, you don't sound horrendous, then it's more about your voice and the, well, obviously the, the message and then your voice secondary. I was actually thinking more about in terms of the accompanying material that you present, because I, I wonder how much that reflects taste. And if people follow you in the field, they can trust your taste. Uh, sorry, how do you mean accompanying material? Uh, slides, visuals, if you choose to illustrate. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. See, that would be one of the, I think I would count that in the distracting category where it doesn't have to be the most handsome, but you don't want it to be so ugly that it's distracting. Um, yeah, I would just refer to the typical advice out there from Slideology. And I think Seth Godin takes an interesting angle where he never puts words on his slides. He just has images to go with what he's saying because he doesn't want people to you know, copy down What's up there? But I, I have seen the effect of if you've found your takeaway phrase, those little like three to five words, um, it does help to put it on a screen. I've watched an interesting thing happen over the last 20 years of doing this is it used to be when you'd make an interesting point, heads would go down because they'd write it down. Now, when you make an interesting point, phones come up because they take a, a picture of the same thing on the screen. Like, so it's kind of put your takeaway quotes on a slide, but make, I would put just the, the five words, not the bullet points, because people are Instagramming your points. I want to thank you for reminding me of my, uh, of my radio career when you said, uh, so ugly is distracting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> someone's talked about the podcast and you talk about getting, getting out there and all the different media, the different, uh, different kinds of channels you can do and, and getting out there in terms of a podcast, I guess in a blog as well. Uh, the, the points made that there are thousands, if not tens and hundreds of thousands of blogs and or podcasts, uh, why bother? Oh, why bother making one? Yeah, why, why, why bother competing in that, in that, in that, you know, you're, you're, you're in this waterfall, <laughs> this ocean of, of, of all kinds of noise, and, and you may be saying something in there, but why, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the thoughts behind that, you know? It, it, it would be like, why bother writing? The words have already been said. Why bother speaking? People have said everything. I just feel that it's like, for, I mean, okay, first to me, everything starts with the writing that first you write something really fascinating. And then once you've, once you've composed your words, um, well then now you, you just use every medium. But to me it's, 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 it's first the writing, but yeah, once you've written something and you feel this is worth spreading, this is an idea worth spreading, this is um, 
something worth sharing, then it's almost just kind of a routine to just go use every medium that people listen to. Um, I felt, okay, to be fair, I felt the same way about podcasts. Why start another one? People have asked me for years, will you make a podcast? I said, no, I'll, I'll just go be a guest on everybody else's podcast. But then I realized that my articles that I was writing, um, that this was just another media format to share the same articles. So my podcast, if you go to sivers.org slash podcast, is just me reading my articles. And that's my podcast. I didn't want to create yet another Joe Rogan style, sit down with a guest every week and have a two hour conversation. Other people can do that, but I just see it as another medium for sharing my articles. A question here about being a minimalist. I, I, I think it might frame the answer. It needs to be short. Uh, <laughs> talk, about, talk about minimalism. Sure. Um, hmm. I think as a, when presenting, there's two different things. There's minimalism publicly and privately. So privately, that's just a preference. Uh, if you like to have a home with nothing in it, if that makes you happy, good for you. If you like to have a home with lots of stuff in it and that makes you happy, good for you. But publicly, I think it's considerate that the, the it's, it's editing, it's removing what's unnecessary. I learned the hard way, this is really interesting. Sorry, this has nothing to do with speaking, but writing. But, um, so for 10 years, I ran this online music store called CD Baby. And it had a couple million customers. So whenever I would send an email out to everybody, I mean, I'm talking like a couple million emails are going out. Um, if I had one sentence that was unclear, I would literally get 5,000 replies from people asking me to explain what I meant by that. And it takes a lot of time to answer 5,000 emails, but I would do it because shame on me for saying a sentence that was not as clear as could be. So each time I would just look at every sentence I had written going, okay, is there any way this could be misunderstood? We think that the goal of communication is to be understood, but I think you could flip it and say the goal of communication is to not be misunderstood which might go back to what you're talking about, the quality of materials. You'd have to look at the quality of your slides and say, could this be misunderstood to look like I'm a homeless person using the library computer to make a presentation? <laughs> could I be misunderstood here uh, to look like I'm uh, struggling and, and broke and don't know what I'm talking about? Um, so, um, let me think. So yeah, minimalism. Oh, okay. So before sending out millions of emails, first I had to fix these sentences that could be misunderstood. But then I also found out that if I wrote an email that was longer than say nine sentences, and if I included an important point, but it was down at sentence number 10 or 11, people would reply back by the thousands saying like, like say I wrote, Hey, we're starting this new program. Uh, it's going to give you these and benefit these this benefits and the ninth or tenth sentence would say and here's how to do it I would get like 5,000 people replying saying great how do I do it and I'd say, it's right there you see the email you're replying to look right there in our little with the arrow bracket in front of it you're looking at the answer on how to do it it's right there but if 
if it falls in the 10th or 11th sentence, people just didn't notice it because they look at a few sentences and then, you know, they're distracted by something else that's shiny. So I think that's where my super succinctness in public communication began, is realizing that the more sentences you use, the less likely they are to hear them. So, and then I just really liked it that my TED talk formats of my three TED talks that are out there that are like under three minutes each, are very satisfying. I like this idea of uh, whatever item that you put out there into the world, whether it's an article or a talk, I really like this idea of having one idea per article so that the takeaway is just one thing. And if you have another thing to say, then that's another article, that's another talk. Don't try to fit 10 ideas into one talk. When you're putting together one of these um, talks or, or articles when you put them out there, um, it's part of your thought process. I am gonna to communicate to a smaller group of people very clearly, or I'm being very clear to a large group of people. I think I think in large group now, maybe just because of my history that I just said with the, the millions of customers. It's been, for me, it's been that way since 2004 or so, um, that everything I've said publicly, I feel has a big audience now. So I have to keep in mind, God, sometimes I even have to keep in mind that some people are drunk. <laughs> I forget about this. Sometimes I get really weird emails from people. I'm like, wow, what the hell? And my assistant reminded me, she said, you know, some people get drunk and they email them. Like, oh, okay, that explains things. Some people are like drunk reading the internet. Because that, that would explain a lot of YouTube comments. Um, but yeah, I always think in terms of big audience now, um, which then makes me be extra, oh, even, I mean, here we are at the, you know, at the, um, you're in Singapore. And I love the fact that in Singapore, you can't assume that anybody has English as their first language. Uh, growing up in America, it was too easy to assume that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I like even assuming that English isn't their first language, that they're not paying attention, that it's millions of people coming in, you know, some of them are 80 years old and some of them are 12 years old. Um, and assuming the biggest audience helps me focus on that thing I just said about making sure I'm not misunderstood. What is your what is your day like when you're looking around when you're walking around? Is that um is it is it a day spent looking for things to say? Mm, sorry, was there more to that question? Uh, well, you began to breathe, so I I thought I'd stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, add more to it now if you want. Was there more to it? Um. As, as in what, what, in what state of mind are you as you, as you go out there? Because I think, I think the reputation that we're, we're dealing with right now, your reputation is one of communicating and, and looking at things and making observations and sharing insights and, and whatever. Um, what's the frame of mind as you go through life? You know, do, do you look out for these things or do they just happen to you and you go like, okay, another one? Okay. Um, I think there are two different mindsets that you can have, it's head up and head down. Um, when I am head up, then I'm actively looking for new ideas, new connections. When I'm head down, uh, you have to be head down to, to focus and turn an idea into finished output. 
I think at those times you actually have to shut yourself off from, from new stimulation in order to get something done. So for example, just for like, for me personally right now, I was very much in head up mode until about Christmas. And then I realized I had some projects were not getting done because I'd been so head up, so damn inspired. So like trying, like doing so many new things that some unfinished things were not getting, were not going to happen until I sat down and made them happen. So just the last two months or so, um, I've been very much head down. I haven't read anything new. I'm deliberately shutting out new inputs, just finish the things that I started. Um, but then I think you can be very deliberate about inspiration. If you're feeling like you want more ideas, then instead of just walking around and hoping to have new ideas, if you deliberately say, if you read uh, books or whatever it is from very different uh, fields, uh, read a book on, on how the roots systems of trees work and read a book on uh, whatever it is, ostrich farming in Mongolia, then you can make these connections. If you start thinking of everything as metaphorical and think, how could this be a metaphor for something else? Or how is this like that? I ended up writing a little, uh, simple little Linux uh, database thing where I would start to catalog all the ideas I'd come across uh, in a database and then wrote a little program that uh, shuffles them up to match them with other ones. So imagine two spinning roulette wheels so that when they match, it's like, oh, idea number 17 with number 83, how are these things similar? And I'd have to say, hmm, how are these things similar? Uh, and in a way that I wouldn't have ordinarily looked for. Um, so I did this because I noticed that the things I had put out into the world that were the most um, rewarded, celebrated, were things where I had made this lateral thinking kind of metaphor accidentally. My talk about um, how to start a movement, the, about the dancing guy and the first follower, that TED talk, that was just watching a little YouTube video that somebody was spreading around but huh, look at this concert where this guy starts dancing and then everybody joins in. And I saw the video the first time, I went, huh, that's kind of cool. But I had just recently read the book Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell and Tribes by Seth Godin. And those ideas were still kind of echoing in my head. So I went, huh, that video's kind of like what uh, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about, like how things turn into a movement, that tipping point. And huh, it's a little bit like what Seth Godin was talking about in Tribes. And so I just sat down and I, you know, in half an hour, I wrote this little article about how this dancing guy video is like leadership. And then the TED conference asked me to turn that into a talk. Um, but yeah, I, you, can, you can approach it really deliberately. You don't have to just walk around hoping for inspiration. Also, a lot of songwriters talk about this kind of thing, but um, there's a wonderful metaphor that inspiration is, if you personify her as a muse, um, like any worthy uh, romantic partner, she'll never make the first move. You always have to make the first move and then she'll come meet you halfway. So you never wait for inspiration. Uh, you sit down at your paper and you start writing without inspiration. And once you start working, inspiration will come and meet you halfway. She sounds high maintenance. Um, <laughs> how much of how much of what you do and what you continue to do, and I'm 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 asking a, um, 
deeper question here about, you know, what, what, what drives you to keep going back to do it? Um, is part of it to satisfy that hormonal rush you get from, you know, like, hey, a lot of people say this is a great idea. They love the idea. Hmm. Good question. There are two things. I'll do them in reverse order. I like meeting people. There's, it was no accident that I asked Frederick to ask you guys to email me questions in advance. I really enjoy the direct connections that I make. Like anytime I do a uh, podcast or something, I ask people to, to email me afterwards, especially it's like one of those two and a half hour long uh, Joe Rogan style podcasts. Well, then at the end of it, um, I say, hey, if you've made it all the way to the end of this interview, please, here's my email address, send me an email. And I've met some of the coolest people. Um, yeah, some, some of my best friends now are people who I've met just because they heard me on a podcast and emailed me out of the blue. And then I meet some just really interesting people, whether they're good friends or not. They're like, you know, a, a shoemaker in Slovenia emailed me. I'm like, cool, I know a shoemaker in Slovenia now. And we email every now and then. Um, my Sicilian friend who's here in Spain, who I'm here visiting, is just somebody that sent me an email after an interview one. So, okay, so number two, I like, so it, again, in reverse order. So number two is I really like meeting the people that I meet with these things. So I hope that you guys send me an email afterwards because I just think it's cool to meet you. Um, uh, Derek at Sivers.org <laughs> or go to Sivers.org slash contact. My email address is in big letters there. Okay, but number one, it just feels like the, we call it creative expression, but sometimes I think it's the curiosity about the realization of an idea. Um, I spent 15 something years as a songwriter before I started CD Baby and then did that for years before I started public speaking by accident, as I told you. Um, and so the songwriting part, I think it often starts with a curiosity of like, you have an idea, you have this melodic idea and you wonder, could I combine it with this harmonic idea or this lyrical idea? I wonder how that would work. And you, you make this thing and then when you're done, you kind of go like, cool, now let me see if it's reaching other people the way it's reaching me. Like, am I the only person that thinks this is interesting? And so then you put it out into the world. I like that we call it release. You release an album, right? You release a book, it's like, it's released. It's not mine anymore, it belongs to the world. Um, so I think of that even, yeah, with articles and talks, I, I come across an idea that I think is really interesting, whether I've invented it or I found it or I combined it with something else. Uh, and then I put it out to the world because I think it's like the final test. Like a songwriter wants to see, am I the only one that likes this song or do you guys like this song? It doesn't even mean that you're searching for adoration or applause. You just kind of want to see if this is reaching other people too. And then the world gives you feedback and might say like, eh, it's too slow to start, or you lost me in the middle. And then you go, oh yeah, you're right. It could be improved if I change this. So I guess I still think of the stuff I put out into the world like that. Um, yeah, I think this is an interesting idea. I wonder if other people will think so too. I'm gonna try and uh, get questions from our online participants. It's our first time doing this thing, so I'm not sure if it's gonna work out. Uh, Heather, you're gonna be up next. I'm gonna unmute you, and if you could also turn on your video camera so that uh, you know, we can see you. Uh, Heather, I'm gonna give the floor to you. You have a question? 
Hi there. Hi. Wow. We're doing it live now, huh? Hi, Heather. I'm not, I'm, I'm not turning on my camera because I'm enjoying the fact that we're working from home and I'm in my pajamas already having a glass of wine in bed as I listen. So there's no way I'm turning on Wait. my camera. <laughs> Sorry. Do you guys see that in the chat, Benjamin Lowe has a question? Um, somebody else pointed it to it said, hey, I really like Benjamin's question up above. So I just scrolled and I see Benjamin Lowe. Um, Derek, I like how you're into stoicism, quite an introvert, presumably, yes, with a social window of two to three hours. How do you suggest for speakers to being out there to do the work, to, uh, to meet the clients, give the speech, and also having enough personal spaces and time to think and introspect and come up with perspectives that surprise? I don't think, hmm, we'll meet the client, we'll give the speeches an obvious, but being out there to do the work, to meet the clients, and also having enough personal space. I think that one of my favorite podcasts right now, I don't listen to many podcasts, but there's a podcast called Conversations with Tyler. It's Tyler Cohen, C-O-W-E-N. He's just this kind of really interesting intellectual at large, and he interviews other really interesting intellectual guests and they have like a really intense intellectual conversation for an hour and he recently interviewed somebody that has a public speaking background so I just heard this last week so it's fresh in my mind and so his question for him he said uh and sorry I forget the guest's name but he said uh you're an introvert and also a public speaker how do you reconcile those two and the guy instantly said oh god being a public speaker is a great way a great thing for an introvert to do because I hate chit chat. I really get uncomfortable with being in a party and people are chit chatting. He said, when you go on stage, it's the ultimate way to talk and not have to engage in any chit chat. You can look incredibly social uh, and have to do no chit chat at all. So um, I might kind of disagree with the question about having to do the work. Um, the TED conference picked me a few times because I just submitted ideas that I composed in solitude um, for consideration and they like those ideas. And then you just show up and you don't have to say much of anything until you're on stage. Um, so I'd say you might not have to do that other stuff. That's one half the answer. The other half is um, sometimes even if something's not your nature, you just fake it anyway. Um, I used to attend a lot of conferences, even though I kind of hated them, but I would just turn it, I would turn on my extrovert side for like one hour. You just go into the lobby with a whole bunch of people and you chit chat and you meet people and you say, hi, what do you do? And you remember people's names and you use all these conversational skills you learn in books uh, that they teach you how to be good at talking to people. And you do that stuff for one exhausting hour or three tops and then you retreat back to your hotel room and that can be enough. Okay, we're going to return back to our alcoholic slumber party. And uh, <laughs> Heather, you're back on with your question. I'm back on. Yeah, sorry. I wasn't trying to cut you off there uh, and end the night or anything. Um, just a quick question for you, because, I mean, when you're putting your message out to millions of people, as you've been doing in the past, there must be that, you know, small percentage of people who are either drunk or crazy or don't understand or whatever it might be, or have just really good points um, going against what you have to say. How do you handle and manage that kind of feedback um, 
you know, especially on things like YouTube and just the ridiculous kinds of mean, hurtful comments that you can get online when people are hiding behind their keyboards. How do, how do you manage all of that negative energy that comes at you when you put yourself out in a very public way? Um, I've got a couple of thoughts. For one, um, I like letting go of the need to be right. So when somebody, um, like especially those people that have a really good point that just disagrees with yours, um, I'm not here to debate. I, I don't like debate because I'm not ever trying to convince somebody to my way of thinking. So when somebody says, um, you know, I completely disagree with you and here's why, I always just say, like I hear them out and I say, cool, that's a really good point, thank you. And then they're acknowledged <laughs> and they're happy. Um, yeah. That's it, I'm not going to go, no, 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 no. I'm telling you why I'm right. You know, unless I really think that, actually, no, I was gonna say, I was about to say unless they've really made a mistake, but no, I think even if I saw that their thinking was completely flawed, I think I might just anyway, just say, hmm, that's a really good point. And just end it at that, just to be polite. Um, Cause I just don't appreciate, I just don't enjoy that debate thing. Some people do, um, but here, Here's another, a completely different angle to that same question. Um, when I was 36, um, on my birthday, I spent, I was in London on my birthday and I, had, I wrote a blog post that night. And I don't know if you guys know how, um, the same way that people will defend their technology choices I guess we don't do this so much anymore, but if you imagine like 10 years ago, like Mac and Windows people used to fight about which one is better. Um, and programmers still really, really do that. Like if a programmer has invested years of their life into learning Java and somebody comes along and says, no, Ruby is better, they get mad. They will fight to the death over which language is better. So um, on my birthday, when I turned 36, I had started using the Ruby on Rails programming framework for a couple of years. And then I stopped and I switched back to PHP and a, a bunch of different people had asked me why by email, by private email. And so like five or six different times, people said, hey, why did you switch back to PHP? And I was like, ah, here's the reasons why I switched back to PHP. And I, after I answering the third or fourth email, I thought, I'm just going to post this on my little technical blog that nobody reads because I had zero readers at the time. I said, here are the seven reasons I switched back to PHP after two years on using Ruby on Rails. I posted it on my birthday, I went to sleep. In the morning when I woke up, for some weird reason, that article had been picked up and became top story news on all of those kind of aggregator blogs like Reddit and Slashdot and all these where a bunch of programmers gather. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments calling me the worst damn insults I'd ever seen in my life. You know, this guy's just a raging idiot. What a, these kind of mouth breathing you know, lunatics with not a brain cell in their head. These guys are the problem. This guy obviously doesn't know a damn thing. And my, it hurt my feelings for about 10 minutes until I realized like, wait a second, all these people insulting me, for one, they don't know me. For two, they've never seen a single line of my code. They're calling me a bad programmer. They've never even seen my work. And it was on that day and forevermore since that I detached from my public persona. In fact, my kid's only eight years old. My advice for him when it comes to the internet is, I've just, or since he was you know, four, I've just taught him this concept. You have your real name and then you have your internet name. 
So when the first time he wanted to start doing like an online game and join the thing, I said, well, you have to make up an internet name. And he said, an internet name? And I said, yeah, your internet name is the one that, that the people on the internet will know you as, because you never use your real name on the internet. And the point is, I like this disconnect between your public self and your real self. And so if somebody's attacking your public self, that's just, it's like a cardboard cutout of you. It's not the real you. In fact, if you were sitting there watching people throwing tomatoes at a cardboard cutout of you, you might think it was actually kind of funny. But it's not the real you. The real you is just sitting there observing the, the spectacle. So this is how I think of public persona. So yeah, if somebody, but when you take, when you detach from your public persona, it also means that you can't take praise personally either. So in any comments of anything that I've put out online, um, I don't take any of it personally. If people are attacking it, I go, oh, cute. If people are praising it, I go, oh, cute. It's just, I'm just detached from it. All right, we have uh, time for one more, and he hasn't described how he's dressed or what he's wearing, but uh, Philip Mary has, uh, has been waiting patiently to ask his question. Uh, Phil, you've been unmuted, and if you'd like to put on your camera, or warn us before you put on your camera, <laughs> please go ahead. I, I'm dressed, and I'm good, and I'm fine. Um, Joe, I think Benjamin's is a better question than mine. So I'd like to give the floor to Benjamin's question on Stoicism. If Benjamin's there. Oh, isn't that, I think, isn't I that think, the one uh, I did? Yeah, I think, uh, I think Derek's already addressed that. So we can, we can okay. go to yours. All right. So um, Derek, what I love about your style, both in your videos and tonight, your secret is you're very present. And through the whole of the evening, I've been able to feel you palpably. Can you give some tips? What do you do to stay present and here and now? Because you do it so well. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, hmm. It's short and intense. Um, I think if I was having to do this for uh, more than this short amount of time we're doing it, I'd, I'd probably have to like turn off. You know how there's kind of like on face and off face? There's on face, which is this, and then it's like, we you know if you're like smiling and then you hang up the phone and you go, <laughs> the muscles in your face kind of drop. I think of the same thing personality-wise too. This is, a, I, nobody has ever asked me this before and I have never said this before, but whenever I do these video interviews, I do a very unnatural thing, which is there's this little dot on my iPad and the whole time I'm looking only at this. Like I haven't looked at anything else and only I had to look over here at my notes. I, even when doing these video things, I like maintaining eye contact helps so much. I learned, I, I'm not a naturally social person. And so a lot of the social things I've learned, I've learned from books that say, you know, uh, 33 things you can do to be a good conversationalist or whatever. I've actually read most of these books and put a lot of their uh, advice into practice um, somewhat painstakingly. It doesn't come naturally, but I would try these techniques. I'd go to events like I, when I was with CD Baby and I had 200,000 musician clients, I would show up to an event in New York City and here's, you know, 250 clients that want to meet me. And they would actually like queue up and I go, oh God, there'd be this queue of people that wants to meet me. Okay. And you just, I'd like learn to do this and like, how can I do this in a sincere way that's not faking, but 
is not completely authentic. Um, meaning to be completely authentic, I might have to say like, I don't actually want to talk to any of you. I'm going to go back to my room now uh, and read a book. But I'd say, okay, that, that would be too authentic. So instead, how can I do this? And so I, that's why I learned these things about asking people questions, uh, maintaining eye contact, and that those little tricks, those techniques uh, actually work and they keep me focused on the, the present. They keep me focused on the other person, which then keeps me present. Does that help? Or would you like to? It's pretty good. Or did I not address times, it? A lot of times you see people looking sideways on videos, but you actually are looking straight at us. It's a great answer. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Well, with that, I'm going to call to an end today's uh, really, really, really fantastic meeting. Uh, and I know everybody's really had a good time. I'd like to invite you to, 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 to show your appreciation by typing all kinds of fun stuff, short, succinct, little one-word things, just to, 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 to say goodbye and thank you very much to Derek Sivers. Uh, and I'm I, going to add my, yes. uh, because I really meant it, when I actually really do enjoy hearing from everybody. I actually put aside time. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, I'm typing my email address and my URL that has my email. Um, I actually enjoy it. I put aside time to answer every single email I get and I like it. It's like one of my favorite parts of my day. So especially, you know, I, I don't know if Frederick told you guys that I'm, I'm still a Singapore PR. Uh, I, I love and miss Singapore. I still have an apartment in Katong, but my wife just didn't want to live there anymore and she found it too hot and she misses her family in New York City. So that's the only reason I'm not living in Singapore and I miss it a lot. So I especially like hearing from people in Singapore. Every morning, actually, this is, this is how cheesy it gets. Every morning I drink a, a type of tea that's made by this company called Tea Two called Singapore Breakfast Tea and it actually smells like the Singapore coffee shops. And uh, so I love hearing from people from Singapore especially. So yes, everybody please send me a, an email and introduce yourself and tell me something about yourself. I know that as I, I, I put this together, it was meant to talk about some